All right, so we're having this conversation about Headspace. And I just sent out, for the last several weeks, I've been sending out articles as it relates to consciousness. Now, it sounds like in your case, you're obviously in your own headspace, right? Like you're like, hey, I'm just trying to make it by. I'm just trying to isolate this trade. And therefore, you know, if we're discussing about durations of countries, this is beyond me. Is, 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 that, is that fair to say? Yeah, if we're talking about civilizations and histories and centuries, yeah, definitely. The, the whole thing is this, though. Is, and, and that was the same conversation that I've been having with some other people. We, we live in a world that is too focused on being literalist, where there is so much narrative and insight to be had if we're going to talk about history of civilization. You're going to be like, okay, what do you mean by that? It's not as if civilization is lasting that long, first and foremost. So imagine, this is what I've been trying to say. I've been trying to say that the duration of an empire is only 240 years. So the country that you're in might not be an empire. The country where you've originated from, it might not be an empire. That's why all these countries are very young. So if you have, do you, let me ask you a question. Do you not have any interest in market cycles? Yeah, 100%. I have interest in market cycles. Yes. Within yes. the time frame of my life. Within, yeah, exactly, exactly. But as you understand, is that everything, even a small cycle, is happening within a big cycle, within a bigger cycle, mm -hmm. right? That's, I think that is um, a very fair assessment to say. And mm, for yeah. you to not understand that would actually disconnect you from actually some of the best invest, investing opportunities. Uh, for example, I've been making a case that the primary driver of Warren Buffett's success in capital markets and I think, when, when do you think you started this portfolio? 19, do you have any idea on the date? 1970-something. I think it was earlier than that. I think he started his partnership between the 50s and the 60s. There's, uh, you know, some, to some Buffettologists, I'm sure that they would know the exact date. But um, <laughs> let, let's, let's just go with um, even your number. But I think it's, uh, and I'll, I'll tack on another uh, 20 years. How many years has that been now? So we're in the year 2020. So let's take 1950 to 2020. How many years has it been? 70. 70? 70. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is there's not that many countries that have even been around for 70 years. That's what I'm trying to say. And, and therefore if a country hasn't even been around for 70 years and you got to understand is that countries are founded. One of the first things that happen is bank reform. And then subsequently, if you're lucky, if they actually decide to open up its capital markets, maybe subsequently 
you will have a stock market. And therefore, the stock market is a mini cycle within something that, believe it or not, is not that long. Let's, let's, let's do a quick mental exercise here, okay? Mm. Do you know what the word antique is? Have you ever heard of that word? Yeah, I've heard of that word. Okay, do you know what it is supposed to define? I just know the general definition of it being an old object, historic object. Okay, great. So let's, let's talk about in the, in the realm of finance here, okay? Mm. I'm going to list for you various different asset classes. And you tell me the one that you think has the most antiquities or antiques, okay? Okay. So here's the list. Stocks. Have you ever heard of anyone that has an antique stock? Yeah, I mean, you could consider GE as an antique stock. <laughs> okay, um, let's go with the definition that it's basically an antique. You know, some people would say that it's at least 100 years. Okay, right. Okay, okay. no. All right, right. Okay, okay. And here's, here's that question I got to ask you is that, have you ever heard of a single antique stock? Probably not. No. Probably not, right? And you're going to be like, what's an antique stock? Because it doesn't exist. Remember, an antique just implies something that's like old, right? Mm. And I just asked you a very simple question, which is like, what is an antique stock? It doesn't exist because no stocks are that old to be even classified as antique. Now, mm. I got to ask you a serious question. What do you think the average lifespan of a human being is? 90, 80, 100. It's, okay. And, and, and I just said to you that the, an antique is like 100 years old. So the difference between a human lifespan and what would classify as antique maybe only has a difference of, let's say, give or take 20 or 30 years. Right? Is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah. Well, the whole thing is this is that there's not that many stocks that have even been on any market, for goodness sakes, for that period of time. So the, the point is, I don't get where this idea of a lifelong investment exists. Okay? So we've just talked about stocks. So let's jump to another asset class. Okay? But you mm -hmm. got to hear what I say very clearly, which is, land titles how many do you think that there are a lot of land titles that would classify as being very historic privately owned not not real estate land titles because that's what's key remember we're talking about investing we're not talking about yeah, a house right. that's been around right yeah do you think that there's a lot no, I don't think so. So not that many. Again, and that's off the assets that is so beloved in many different countries in the world, which is real estate. Okay. Mm. I understand that there's real estate that's thousands of years old. Not that many, but it exists, or at least several hundred years old. Mm. But I don't hear too many people that have land titles that are that mm. old. 
And the reason why I say land titles is I'm thinking of it as an asset class for the purposes of investing. Now let's jump to another asset class where maybe there might be an antique or, you know, a very historical um, asset, which is currencies. Do you, do you hear about currencies that have been around for that long? No, not really. Exactly. Maybe the US dollar. Maybe the and US by the way, uh, <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's taken, it's morphed. But remember, that's the biggest one, and that's the world reserve currency. Yeah. You, you see what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't, for goodness sakes, even the euro has, I think it was, it only came in the year 2000. Yeah, it was it's Deutsche Mark or something before that. That's only in Germany. That's only in Germany. And Germany has had a massive history when it comes to currencies. Literally, within your lifespan, you have seen the rise and fall of so many major currencies. Why? Because you're also seeing a rise and fall of so many countries. Hmm. Now, the final asset class. Crypto. How about art? Do you think that there's a lot of antique art? Yes, yes, actually. My question for you is great observation skills, but my question for you is why? Why is it that you can have a Picasso, a Rembrandt, a Da Vinci, a Michelangelo? And why is it it can classify and transcend within the realm of becoming classified as an antique? Why do you think that's the case? That's... that's most interesting question anyone's ever asked me. I don't really know. I thought it was in my head just some value that some people assigned to it and it just became a perpetuating thing. Right, right. Because there's no clear... I'll tell you why. It's, it's not Sorry? a market. Um, to, to say that is sort of unfair too because basically you can see all the amazing auctions that happen at all the major auction houses and these things. Um, first off, I mean, that's why you build museums, right? You store a lot of that art and you can see it's relatively liquid, especially if it's um, highly desirable. And mm -hmm. if you notice, it actually appreciates quite a bit. You know, we could put a, a few other things into it as well. Like, I guess there's some avid wine collectors and stuff like that too. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I'm willing to put uh, potentially wine. Um, what else? Like some coins, um, mm. and historical primarily though, when related to sure, sure, sure. But yeah, yeah. We'll we'll talk about the coins in a bit. Uh, I'll discuss about like Roman Empire coins I have. But let let's just isolate it because I think what's the most famous as far as the antiquity world is concerned is more like in the realm of arts. I, I guess we're in agreement with that, right? Yeah. Okay, so, and you still probably haven't cracked the puzzle on why, right? Yeah. Okay. The reason why 
is because art is not connected to any single individual country or state. Its value is not predicated on the existence of any single country or state. Hence why these assets are able to be durable throughout the rise and fall of countries. Hence why you could hold these assets. If you notice like very um, family fortunes or you know, like some aristocrats will have art that they can transfer from generation to generation yes, to generation. Yes. I've seen very few assets. Exactly. Exactly. Hence why I also added wine to the equation. Yes, I understand wine comes from a point of origin. I understand that art comes from an individual that constructs it. But basically, there's no real binding aspects to to a country. For example, um, ANZ stock derives its value off being basically the big one of the biggest banks in Australia. So if Australia were to become insolvent based on its high debt to GDP, there's probably a chance that you won't be able to see the fruition of this company becoming an antique right it's it's it doesn't happen actually and, and there's you know, humans involved. I, I, exactly exactly there's other uh players there's human error or greed yeah. that could be involved that would um undermine stuff like that as well mm. but if you notice there are assets that are lasting within again like i said within a reasonable time um even in our lifetime, like, you know, let's, there are people that live to the hundreds, right? And that could actually see the rise and fall of their country. I, you know, I'm sure every, a lot of people uh, can grasp what I'm trying to say here. So be cognizant of that is what you think is solid might not be as solid as you think. So, and... I'm saying, I'm referring to it within our lifetime. So if I'm already putting a question mark on a lot of assets and the biggest assets and economies and countries within our lifetime, um, I think that's short time frame. As far as like, you know, the things that you thought will be around no matter what, they're not gonna be around no matter what is what I'm first and foremost saying. So then everything else, is obviously a shorter duration of that, but even what we thought was long is not that long. Mm. Yeah. Because of the errors that states present. So anyways, I just wanted to, and by the way, what that implies is, you know, historically investors have discussed about market cycles in a duration of seven years or something like that. Well, the point is this is like, you know, seven times 10 is already like, 70 and believe it or not some countries might not be able to get up to 70 and that seems yeah. to be the issue so even if you want to like you know we're we're dealing I, i've heard this very interesting statistic where like millennials have dealt with a lot of market crashes but then again you know you can make a case that if anyone was born in like the early 1900s they've seen a lot of bs happen in the world but it's not that many but clearly imagine if you were born in the 1900s you have seen so much so so much and you have seen many countries um rise and fall in that period of time so 
So be cognizant of that. And you might think to yourself, well, you know, at this very moment, I don't see it. But, um, and I get, I get that maybe what you're interested in is, is in only this very moment. But good luck trying to trade when your currency is being deflated hundreds of percent at a time. Or good luck trying to build a long-term portfolio. Because remember, I get a lot of value guys telling me how they're long-term portfolio holders. And I'm like, okay, so like say you're a close-in fund or you're some retail guy and you're trying to mimic Warren Buffett's strategy in Russia, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's going to work for you. Because I don't know if you can hold it. Like we That's why I mentioned Buffett. I don't know if you can hold it for, what, 1950 to uh, 2020. There's no certainty of that. Although mm. Putin's trying to basically be in power for Russia permanently. So maybe every start regime will be around. But I don't know if that's going to be the best investing climate. I get that the valuations are very low. Mm. I understand all that. But for goodness sakes, we don't even know what's going to happen in the election. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so anyways, I just wanted to share that context. And then the thing is, this is sometimes when we're being so... <laughs> focused on our day-to-day, I really sense, and I wrote about this, is that I sense that we're losing consciousness of what's really happening around us. And and you might say to me, well, you know, Peter, it's the haves and have-nots, right? I I, got to be able to, to make it by. But this is what I noticed, especially this year, and this year has encouraged me to think and speak more freely is that if you're clearly myopic like that, especially in the realm of finance, capital markets, looking for investing opportunities, you were basically in panic mode for a majority of this year because you're unable to see things that are coming and happening. Mm. So I, I would say that I, cause long story short is that I became much more active as this year developed in the stock market than I've ever been because I'm like, this is a golden opportunity. And I distinctly remember calling many people that look like a deer in the headlights, clueless of what to do. They, they were like, uh, that sounds risky. In fact, for goodness sakes, I, I might as well share this. I told my parents, I'm going to be buying equities. They're like, Oh, son, this is so risky. Why are you doing this at this time? And I, I, the only thing I can do is just laugh. Yeah. I mean, the, when everyone else thinks it's risky, that's probably the best time to buy. Well, on my tw- honestly, on my, when I was basically trying to call historical bottoms, people are like, you are insane. So, so I think that this idea of just saying, and, and I refer to consciousness again, is if you're just going to be unconscious of the world around you, I understand, but I think then your perspective for investing has also become extremely myopic as well. And I think that the real edge in a time of uncertainty is to be able to see everything and the only way to be able to see everything is being conscious about what the heck is happening around you in all facets, by the way. 
Hmm. And having a clear idea and clear vision of what you're seeing and not, you know, just panicking in the moment and taking decisions in the moment. Well, well, exactly, because I, I wouldn't make the case, and I know that we have an interest towards, like, you know, um, some nice swing trades, but I think that there are, like, I think I felt that, especially in the month of March, when these trades that you're making are so much more significant to the world than it really is about an intraday scalp or some kind of swing trade. And I, I would imagine, and I know it was very much like that during the global financial crisis, because not only are you just calling a top on the stock market, you're calling almost, sorry, not only are you calling the bottom in the stock market, you are almost calling a bottom on basically our civilization. Because if it got that much more worse, and if we didn't get basically reduced volatility to where we're at in the months of July, we'd be royally screwed. It's already bad enough. But if you weren't able to see that, and by the way, you think that that was just a single quantitative approach that gave you the confidence and the conviction to say that's a historical bottom. No, it's not just that. It was everything. That historical bottom was fueled by quantitative easing, if they, even if they don't want to use that word, uh, the Fed. It needed to be fueled by politics, central mm. banking, investor sentiment, um, everything, just, just the retail investor, institutional investors, the media. It needed everything in confluence to have worked the way that it was. And that's what you call a big trade. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk about was um, back to your book and mm. more personal with you is uh, what made you write the book? and why, why did you think about, you know, revealing the system and your methodology in the book? Because there are a small percentage of people that are producing, first and foremost, really good content. And there's also a small percentage of people that are telling the truth. And even if they are providing good content or telling the truth, there will be the masses that won't be able to grasp it, understand it, nor even think about it. So if you notice many people, many of the greatest thinkers throughout history mm. can say the greatest stuff, but they are only recognized long after they're gone. So are you thinking, are you thinking of anyone specifically? Or? 
Wow. Uh, or in science. The one that comes to mind. And yeah, in so many different fields, right? Like, I mean, now to this day, we're still talking about Ben Graham, right? So mm. th that would be in the, the field of finance, for example, where we're in, in every field. So what I came to realize was that there's nothing wrong with sharing the truth, sharing an awesome system, because we live in a time where there's a lot of people that are not conscious, like we were just talking about earlier, and would say to me as a literalist, yo, you need to program for me everything as it relates to um, Microsoft, which I'm trading at this very moment. And I am completely dumbfounded by that question, considering I've given you a lot of the recipe. So, so what, what I've been trying to say to you thematically is that again, there are literalists in the world and then there are people that understand the narrative and understand like if someone gave me the contents of the book or if someone is giving me some of the content that I'm currently producing, I would know how to take that to the next level. But some people would be like, well, I need it curated, particularly for me, and no problem to do something like that. But, you know, that's going to take a lot of time and energy to do so. I, I just wish someone threw me a little bit of a bone. As long as the, 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 the trail is set, I think that I'd be able to be conscious enough to understand where this is headed. Hence why we're able to develop new things and to think about things um, from new perspectives. And that's always been the pursuit. The pursuit was never just to say like, hey, I can intraday scalp, which is fantastic, right? And a lot of people could do that for a career. Um, Standard & Poor's uh, futures, S&P futures, uh, current month contract, I'm happy to do so. But then what happens if you notice is that when you watch all the talking heads or if you watch society, some people are like, hey, you're doing nothing productive. All you're doing is just trading. I've heard that. I'm sure, I'm sure you heard that line. And then I'm sure you've also seen how people are so disgruntled about uh, why is it like the stock market's going up when that's not the real economy? Well, for I'm a thinker and I'm a conscious person. And when people say that, you need to sit back and go, hmm, what's this all about? So I needed to go about understanding why I'm doing what I'm doing. I've even heard people say, like, say, for example, in 9-11, there were people that went long uh, gold and short on insurance companies um, and then basically have been penalized for an ethical decision or indecision that they made. Or I spend time in socialist regimes where the South side finds it difficult to say anything pragmatic or objective about why this stock is a sell instead of a buy because of nationalism. So for, for someone to say that um, you're just able to roll through the motions, I mean, clearly you must be a robot in order to do something like that without thinking. But I think as part of thinking and thinking about the big picture, 
then you're able to put things together that actually potentially make you even a better investor. So throughout this whole period of time, when demand is shot, how the heck are you supposed to buy companies and how the heck were you able to isolate that maybe technology will still be functioning while everyone's locked at home with a virus? Um, you needed to be able to think about many different aspects besides just talking about how you're going to scalp the S&P while some people talking heads are talking about how the stock market should have been shut down and telling you if you're profiting from it, how unethical it was for you to do something like that. And I think that there is an opportunity and an investment thesis to be had with all of those things. And therefore, that creates interesting new swing trades, interesting new scalps, and interesting new investments. So if everyone's like criticizing, I'm like, wait a minute, maybe that's not the economy. So we're talking about the financial economy and the real economy. What if all of this in aggregation is the actual economy? What if your criticism towards someone that's scalping the NASDAQ is actually should be rewarded and understood that, oh my gosh, like our society, our civilization, which we just talked about earlier, isn't just what I see and feel, but what if it's actually also includes the proprietary traders? Because clearly the economy, clearly debt ratios, uh, clearly credit is fueling whatever remnants I see when I step outside of my house. I get that I see the things that I see, but the infrastructure ain't growing as fast as the credit. And people are becoming ridiculously wealthy and ridiculously poor through the expansion of credit. And for prop traders, Robin Hood people, and prop desks within investment banks seem to be doing okay, while maybe private equity that has to deal with the real world or the real economy might actually be mitigated. And therefore that's gonna affect their earnings for Q3 and Q2. And as a result, there is an intraday scalp to be had or some kind of earnings run that you could play on as a proprietary trader speculating on the profitability of someone's prop desk relative to their PE desk. But you, you, you see what I mean? Like there's so much there to be had um, as it relates to everything. And very few people are actually thinking and being conscious of, of what's happening. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a service. It's providing liquidity and um, you know, one of the things that I think Milton Friedman talked about is the velocity of money, which keeps the economy growing. And, you know, if sure. But, but you try telling that you try telling that to the average uh, person um, out in the streets of Sydney, for example, about what you just said. And they, that's when they'll tell you you're being abstract. See, I'm actually making a much more tangible argument when I say that. And I'm just saying, actually, yo, that is the, that's the economy. Like this is the whole economy. Like it includes your nine to five, but by the way, all that velocity of money, that's actually very real too. And as opposed to complaining about it, once that we accept that that's the actual economy, we need to understand that it's not just about the nine to five. It's about how do I get exposure to that velocity of money? And that's mm. the, the, the bridge. This is, by the way, that's the wealth divide too. 
that's the class war that we're experiencing. There are people that are making arguments about the real economy because let's say they work at Walmart or Costco and they're missing out on this acceleration in the velocity of money. But, but what I'm trying to say is that they're not really missing out because if we just told people that this is the whole entire economy that includes the velocity of money, then therefore you chose to not participate in it. And therefore that's why you're in your circumstances. That's a whole different way or perspective of discussing about it. Yeah, that's interesting. You, you see what I mean? Because a lot of the people that people, again, because everyone's being myopic, you have the Walmart Costco guy that's disgruntled. And then you got the Robin Hood guy that's just like, hey, I'm trying to buy and sell uh, stocks just like I'm trying to uh, do eBay. And no one is really seeing everything for what it is. And the proof in the pudding is when you look at the world today, I just saw some amazing statistics where um, basically more than half of the working population has been clearly affected by all of this COVID stuff particularly as it relates to their pockets, their earning power, and their expenditures. Mm. If you take that into account relative to the amount of people that have been infected by this disease, and if you had presented it, like, you know, let's say, let's say if I made you the CEO of a company and I said to you, one of your colleagues has a flu and they're um, of, um, you know, their demographic is like millennial. They're relatively young. Um, their chances of uh, death is relatively low. Now imagine you make the call after I told you that and you, you represent a, a company of a hundred people. Imagine you make the call based on peer pressure um, to basically shut down. And that almost is kind of like what's happening. Now, if you're an executive of a company, assuming that the government didn't force you to shut down, you might need to think of things a little differently. In fact, some people, I, well, I would make the case that maybe I need to stay open. Now, will some people criticize you for that? Hell yeah. A lot of people will criticize you for that. But did anyone really think about all the implications? What about half or 55% of your workforce um, having their livelihoods affected? And I, I'm saying this to you after the fact. When, when you're making a decision, especially with an unknown variable like that, you need to think about the greater good. And the issue though, is that sometimes people will take a minor good and escalate that in comparison to the greater good and then criticize you for making a greater good decision even though you thought that what you're doing is probably the biggest perspective of all and then the question is how do you deal with yourself and handle yourself in that situation and that that's pretty much what most of the world went through as far as countries deciding to lock down, for example, and then obviously the economic backlash that is now translated into people's livelihoods. 
I, I, I think that it's important to be uh, knowledgeable and wise to think about how to handle these economic mental exercises that have now become our actuality. Or how, how does, again, I had friends that were basically saying to me that they were in a house of pain and I'm just long NASDAQ. Hello? Yeah, Peter, uh, I, I thought you were continuing. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I, so, I mean, one of the things uh, you, I mean, it's a good segue because you're talking about the wealth divide and, um, you know, people not relating the real economy to the financial economy. And mm. you came from humble means. You had a diff difficult relationship with your parents. At one point, you were sleeping on your friend's couch, uh, mm. going to the library to read up on markets as much as possible to build up a trading career. Um, can you give a bit more color on that experience? That really was one of the things that inspired me uh, you know, to work harder on my own trading. And I'd love to hear more about that experience. Yeah, that, that question right there uh, probably explains why I'm still doing what I'm doing and probably explains why I'm talking to you with such a bigger, because I mean, that's legitimate skin in the game. And what's, what's interesting is that many people, I, I've seen this in, in this field too, is that many people in finance, they come and go. In fact, they, they switch professions and they end up be, becoming like maybe a barista or something like that, or they think about opening some boutique um, coffee shop um, as their rebuttal, by the way, to the financial economy relative to that of the real economy. Um, but I, I think if you have legitimate skin in the game, you create this authenticity uh, because of the blood, sweat, and tears that that get you to where you're at. So when you when you're talking about precision, my my sole pursuit has always been to basically minimize as much risk as possible while going up the risk curve. Do you know what I mean when I say that? But that sounds very risky. I mean, um, what you did, which was not, not follow a simple career path, decide to, you know, um, not be with your parents and sleep on a friend's couch and try to make this work. Isn't that, uh, am I phrasing it correctly or? Well, remember, that's in your early uh, 20s as well. And again, what I'm saying is that I, I've hired like hundreds of people and I don't see people with, with that, that hunger in their eyes. Um, they, they just don't got it. I mean, hence why, like, you know, in any profession, you only have like, you know, a few people that really reach a level of like elite. And it's because frankly they're soft right and and the thing is this is what's made them soft is that they went through it in a conventional route but they don't want it like that 
Do you get what I'm trying to say? Like, I, I have a tough time getting people to work overtime. They're like, wait, is the salary included with overtime? And I'm like, what the hell? Like, I'm, I'm, the, one, I'm the one who sat, slept on the couch. I took, as we just talked about it in terms of, I'm the one who took all the risk to put this all together. Yeah. And, and here you are talking to me about overtime? Come on. <laughs> and and that's, that's why I have a, a massive appreciation for free markets. And, and what I mean by that is that there is a remnant that a meritocracy to some capacity does exist. Clear, clearly, for example, in the realm of battles of ideas, for example, some people take a liking to what you say. And perhaps those are people you're going to be able to want to work with. And as a byproduct of that, you're, it also helps you a lot to filter out the people that maybe you don't want to talk with. So, so that I think that all of that is relevant to really propelling you. And then remember, since there's no sweet cushion, then you know that it's very difficult for you to like you. You better be, you better go for it, and you better have managed. Um, the risk appropriately. So, so long story short is when you're looking at 2020, it's just like, you're not really phased by that because like, I, I'll t I'm not sleeping on a couch. I'm actually looking outside um, with this beautiful view. I'm looking into like the rivers and you know, all the infrastructure. <laughs> I'm not sleeping on a couch anymore. So, so that, that allowed you to build the mind of like stoicism. Once you've already seen like the lowest of the low, everything is gravy and <laughs> then you realize that your your drive exactly your drive is completely internal um you know what's so funny i'd love to share this because obviously when you're going through a journey like that people are going to comment towards you and they're going to give so many different opinions and what is so hilarious is and, and you see it when you watch the news like let's say you have some world leader and people are like mm -hmm. this world leader he must be depressed he must be he must be so disappointed. Oh, he's, he's seen now. Or they're saying like, there's something wrong with him. And, and I, I, I sometimes, as you go through this journey, you get people, because uh, basically if you're the boss, sometimes you cannot always be who you are. You obviously have to be like a leader and you have to be serious as it relates to the work. So then they're probably like, oh, wow, like he looks so grumpy or something like that. And what's so funny is like, no, I'm actually like super happy. I'm just really keen to solve this puzzle. So maybe I'm not going to sit there and just like laugh around because I think I'm on the cusp of understanding what an omega point is, or I'm at the cusp of identifying a historical bottom while the whole world is about to collapse. I'm enthused about it. I'm excited about that. But it would be really weird for me to equate emotion as it relates to all of this because it is an intellectual pursuit. And, and what I mean by that is this is like, who the heck is anyone to instill your own personal feelings and assess that when they have no idea what you feel inside? Do you get what I'm trying to say? Mm -hmm. Like you, what I mean is like, you have people that are like, uh, oh, this, this world leader, he, he must be so depressed. He seems so unhappy. I mean, I don't have the ability to read people's feelings, but for some reason, I think it's because of like this whole perpetuated emphasis towards EQ is that we think we're supposed to interpret people's feelings, but we have no idea.
Like for example, maybe someone might be listening um, to me now and go, wow, like he's, he's so intense about this. Maybe there's some dark secret history about him that he's not happy about. No, I'm enthused. I'm totally enthused about the whole situation, but it really doesn't matter about how I feel. What matters is how you think about it. And what I mean by that is like, if you've gone through what you highlighted in terms of your question through that, then I think the stoic approach is like, everything's gravy. Am I on my couch? New? Am I able to have this fantastic coffee? And do I have some really nice to prepare breakfast for me? And am I going to the pool right after I'm done talking to you? Hell yeah. And I'm going to get some sun and I'm going to prepare for the rest of the day. Like, but I'm not going to sit there and tell people, oh, that's how I feel because we need to be discussing about ideas because that's what people are listening to. And, and I think another example is when you watch about all these movements about some group, for example, like I'm done hearing about what your skin color is or where you stand in terms of your personal life. I'm not interested in hearing about that, especially if it relates to the field of finance. You don't need to tell me who you are um, it, and then say how you're being oppressed in the field of finance. Just tell me about Omega Points. Tell me about how I can be able to scalp um, stocks. Or tell me about how uh, civilizations are much shorter than I imagine, and therefore I can create an investment uh, cycle or market cycle out of it. I don't need to know who you are. I just need to see quality ideas, quality execution, quality approaches so that then I will appreciate you for who you really are, which is you are XYZ person that is able to do this with a crazy, amazing skill set. And, and potentially you're underappreciated, not because of what your skin color is, but because of your raw skill set. That's what I want to see. And I think when we're spending way too much time emphasizing who someone is based on what they're born, you know, like basically genetically, that doesn't help improve the conversation about this wealth divide, nor does it improve the conversation about how do we understand markets in arguably one of the toughest tapes in history. So therefore, I don't discuss about those things. I want us to discuss about ideas and to find great opportunities and great investments. Okay. So let's then talk about, you mentioned some of the books you were reading around that time. What were the books that had a big impact on you? Um, Larry Williams, Victor Niederhofer, um, a few others. There's so many, but the, the whole point is uh, some to isolate it as some is just way too limited. You got to read everything. You see what I mean? Because how did you identify the flavor of what you wanted to do? So you don't think someone that was looking into finance isn't going to read Intelligent Investor. But then there was something about me that maybe is in your situation, which is like, okay, this is cool, but how can I make money off of this? You, you, you see what I mean? But you mm -hmm. need to go through it, right? You need to go through it and then say, wait a minute, I like this flavor, this flavor, and this flavor. Oh, how about we fuse a little bit of this together? Oh, but then I like that like that. I like that. How do we fuse that together? So mm -hmm. as a result, I, 
the the quantitative approach of the big trade is the crux because i think that that allows you to handle what's happening in the ontological economy or the actual economy based on you know the numbers as it relates to capital markets but then now it's like okay how do we build something that goes around that which is this general universal theory of investing so then i've added elements like credit expansion within balance sheets through using the analogy of a, a cycle and then connecting that to the entry points and exits using the big trade and then understanding what's happening within the country and the sector all in confluence and very few people are doing that but then that starts to really accelerate your edge so a lot of the material there's some people that have been following my material for a while the reason why i bought silver last year as opposed to now is because the signal that i had wouldn't really make sense now and that was basically massive investments that the miners were willing to make to go into silver um indicating a short-term demand influx could rise subsequently within a duration of let's say 12 to 24 months so as covid started to play out we see that the demand um is going up slightly and then there's basically no supply irrespective of capex which is a new variable that you're dealing with because it's like you've invested and now you can't extract because you're locked on but then there's demand but not that much demand because obviously people are going through things and as a result you see this massive pullback in precious metals and then lower grade precious metals and industrial metals and then now you see like this 100% plus rise that you see right now um that's nice volatility within this year but there was actually no fundamental underpinning to it besides the quantitative easing but then also a rebalancing of portfolios as everyone was basically rushing towards us dollar and then sort of like out but then into higher beta assets so to go, going back to to your question which now answers all the stuff that's going on in 2020 is yeah you got to be aware of everything in order to really like amp up your edge I, I have no doubt that the quantitative edge is if you can only have one that's the one you want but man what's going to give me super confidence towards like the swings is going to be that fundamental edge but thinking about it quantitatively so it's let, let's say you know balance sheets making higher highs or something uh, analogous to that and then you know what is what is the lag time and then is this being confirmed by price as we are witnessing today i think that that's what 
makes you a, a savage as far as capital markets is concerned. And no one can take that away from you. And that that's something, remember, you're going to be in this profession for a long time. It, it looks like, because I notice a lot of guys in finance, they don't retire. They, there's a guy I know, he's in his 80s, and now he's running some um, environmental sustainable funds after he was one of the biggest um, executives of um, one of the biggest funds in, in the world. So th you're going to be around here for a long time, and you better be sharpening um, your, your tools and refining that. And, and uh, that's because you're really into it, because you actually were in the sofa and reading a ton of books and really thinking about the game for what it really is. That's the story. At the hour mark. Um, so wow. So I guess let's- Let's do two more questions. Let's finish off on, um, so what were your prop trading days like between 2004, 2007? And if you could talk about some of the great trades you did during that time, best and worst. Yeah. Okay, so the ones, the two that come to mind, the most beautiful ones um, is basically, and by the way, it could have some resonance in this day and age too, is long nat gas um, going into Katrina. Now, you're not obviously anticipating Katrina to happen, but your long nat gas going into hurricane season um, and then you, you're seeing basically what, like uh, 4 to $8 per MBTU. And then it went up to about what, like $17, $18 on, on the futures. Um, but then again, like, like we talked about, you know, there was a lot of uh, destruction that happened um, during that period of time. And you're just like, well, that's when you're at your come up. But the whole point is like that, those are things you got to deal with. Like, imagine this. So let's say you're long gold. That implies that you, you probably have to buy into my thesis that nations collapse and they should collapse very soon because basically that's the only way you're going to see multi-thousand dollar gold. So the question is, what, how are you going to feel about this as that all progresses? Do you, you know what I mean? And, mm. and I, I think at that time I was still... Um, too immature to understand what's happening. I, I, I would just be like, you know, the, the, the trader and you would just go, okay, cool. And it's, it's not like you're going to let that affect your trade, but I think having greater awareness, not uh, about everything that's going on and just understand, okay, why I'm doing what I'm doing, um, how this is all going to play out. Perhaps it's actually going to make your defined entry and your exit uh, much more successful. And the other one that comes to mind is around that time, there was also uh, oil was doing very well. And this probably led to probably one of the greatest currency speculations I've ever made, which is long Canadian dollars, short Japanese yen, based on the interest rate differential and off of the fact that Canada has a very high correlation to the oil industry. Uh, despite all their environmental talk, by the way. Um, and at the time, that correlation was as high as about like 80%. I'm not saying that there's causality um, when we're referring to that, but you know, I'm just thinking about this like very much like a simpleton, which is basically Canada, oil, Japan, uh, net importer, 
massive interest rate uh, differential as far as the yields are concerned. So irrespective of that, every week you're getting paid off for holding um, the, the currency, which had very sound and strong fundamentals um, for, for that duration. So those two are, are like, yeah. People need, you know, we have like people that like hold up like diplomas and trophies and stuff like that. They don't have like trophies for like great trades. <laughs> they used to you have know what I mean? Like competitions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've always um, thought about uh, participating in, in some of them, but, but I feel like the, the necessity, the, the one thing I'll say this is that that necessity to force a trade when you're not able to build, paint a Picasso of a trader investment, um, can be frustrating. So for example, you, you see this guy that's making a thousand percent, but he's, he might be able to do it for a short period of time. And he might be the, the figure that you're chasing in this competition, but you're like, wait a minute, naturally I would never do something like that to begin with anyways. So therefore like you play your own game. And what I understood was that the experts or all the greatest investors are just looking for like 25, 30% per annum. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do you build around that that's sustainable? Uh, it's not designed so that you uh, take crazy risks for the highest possible re return, which would be the objective to win that competition. But like, okay, am I really getting something off of this? Um, that would be the thing that I'm thinking about. So as far as, um, you know, when the market was collapsing, I went into a much more like performance oriented um, mindset where it's like, okay, like, you know, basically how do we crush everyone's performance? And that's because it was such a, a unique time, but I'm sure like, let's say for the last two weeks where I'm not that active, of course, there's going to be people that perform better than you. But the whole point is like, you know, I, I take solace in the fact that you're identifying them at, at, you know, pivotal moments as opposed to just like the noise. And, and because you know that those things will come again and how do you handle yourself on those next little cycles? So, so that's, that's how, that's how I feel about it. Like I, I wouldn't want to make a fund at an all time high. I'd want to make it at like a massive pullback and everything that we do is we need to prepare ourselves for those moments. And in fact, hope for like W shaped economic recoveries and bounces because that actually makes things even more interesting. But then again, obviously a lot of people might not be doing so well in that situation. Mm. So there you go. Well, let's, let's take one more question. Oh, this is time for one more. Okay. Uh, yeah. Let's just do one more. All right. Finish strong and hard. So what, what are your goals right now and what's exciting you at the moment? I think that's a good way to end it. The trilogy. The trilogy. Um, what is exciting me at this moment is where the hell we're going. 
right? Like what has happened has changed everything forever. And the interesting thing is where we're going with it. Some people, like we talked about, like uh, the first points that we were discussing about are completely oblivious to where we're going. And they're just hoping that everything goes back to normal. And I mean, that can be countered with that expression, the new normal. So things are not going back. And I think that the trend of our economy and our society is now curating itself to people like the guy that wrote that book that you read released in 2012. Because I think that this idea of working in isolation, this gig economy, mm. this technological economy, um, this numbers-oriented or finance-oriented economy as led by further centralization and authoritization of the state is basically leading us to the end, right? And I think that in all of those things that I just listed, you have to be that much more ready for. And, you know, I don't know if the word exciting is appropriate, but I think the preparation towards those changes is what I'm thinking about and what I'm preparing for. And I, I actually like the idea of what has happened in the field of finance as far as this year is concerned because it created this open play field in which it really is about meritocracy because who the hell has anything good to say about what to do as far as this year is concerned? Because I wanna hear what that person has to say. And the truth is not too many people or the truth is a lot of people are telling you things that are very redundant. So who has some of the more interesting things to say? Who's preparing for them? Who's preparing for all the things that are happening? And I think that that is what not only what I'm doing, but what everyone should do for this new world that we're living in now. Hmm. Well, yeah, 100% agree. Um, I guess let's end it there. Uh, and... Uh, well, I have nothing much to add to that because that was a really good insight into how we should all think about the future and prepare because there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment. Thank you very much. Cheers.